The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. Can you all hear me okay? Last time I was here, there was a different mount earpiece or something. That's good, good volume. The, uh, just one little side no- or uh, addition is that my, my group, uh, it's called Rebel Dharma in Santa Cruz, is part of Insight Santa Cruz, and um, it's open to anyone, not just young adults. I should change that in my bio. Let's see, what else? I am both, um, it feels good to be here, Coming here, I was a little apprehensive. Big group. You know. Gil's your main teacher. And <laughs> big shoes to fill. So as I walked in, I felt a little contracted in my heart. A little like, oh, they're not going to like me. I'm younger, I'm different. But then I got to sit. And really feel the the conditioning of my life and my heart kind of melt away into this practice. And I just became really grateful for this practice. Because it it gives us an opportunity to incline our mind in a different direction than the instinctual uh, or the conditioned uh, that we've been doing for so long. So I'm just coming from the weekend. I was down in Esalen, which is a whole other world, right? Um, And I was with some of my friends and colleagues, and we were teaching, well, I was participating in a workshop about the heart practices, the Brahma Viharas, sublime abodes. And so I actually left there. Uh, I had committed to coming here before I was invited to go there. And so I was like, okay, well, how am I going to do all these things? And there's plenty of time, apparently, from here. (laughs) But it was really nice to be down in the, you know, Big Sur, and it was stormy, and there's tubs, and, you know, there's like this kind of, it actually was, was one of the things, that, and we were in this yurt, and there was like, you know, 40 or 50 people in this yurt, and we're doing these heart practices, and there's this like huge storm, like the yurt is moving, and, <laughs> and inside there was stillness and calm, and it was a pretty amazing experience to be you know, I, I, I don't know if you've ever kind of been on retreat and had, you know, there, where, where it's really stormy out, but then there's calm inside. Or sometimes it's really calm outside and stormy inside, right? <laughs> and that's generally the case for me. So uh, it was nice to actually experience the opposite, I guess. Uh, 10, 15 years of practice is proving to be helpful. Uh, 
So I thought I would just focus on that, on uh, the Brahma Viharas, the sublime abodes. I'm going to give a kind of an overview of uh, all of the heart practices and then uh, really focus specifically on, uh, on compassion because I think it's helpful. Apparently the Buddha did too. So the title of this talk, for whoever's keeping track, is, uh, <laughs> there's someone always, right, that keeps track, <laughs> marking it off their list. Okay, I got that one. Courageous heart of compassion. I believe that compassion is, uh, takes courage. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. So as I said, the sublime states, you know, God-like states, Brahma, Viharas, a resting place for the, uh, for the mind and heart. I really, my favorite term is sublime abodes, you know, this kind of lofty, uh, even kind of heavenly place of rest. feeling grounded among the groundless. This is what kind of um, I think of when I think of these states. And, you know, I didn't always think of these states, actually. When I first uh, came to practice, I wanted nothing to do with love and kindness and compassion. I didn't want anything to do with that. I thought that was sissy la-la. That was like, um, I don't know, some stuff that the hippies came up with when they brought it to the States, you know? (laughs) Ram Das or something. That is, that is, let's just throw a little, little loving kindness in there. I just didn't. I didn't buy it at first. Uh, I thought this was a wisdom practice, and our our goal is to be austere and, you know, eat a grain of rice a day and you know get get enlightened. You know, not be kind and warm, friendly. <laughs> I also came from a, a Soto Zen practice when I very first started, so it was very kind of uh, rigid, yeah. clacking wood and yelling Sazen is pretty much what I got. And I was young, but the um, and I was resistant to heart. I was resistant to heart because at some point, really early on, opening my heart meant opening myself up to pain and suffering. Didn't really know the term suffering, but I definitely knew the experience of it from a real, real early age. You know. It's a different direction. Okay, so the Buddhist perspective, uh, the way I understand it, is that there's really these two wings, right? The, the wing of wisdom and the wing 
of compassion or the wing of kind of heart practices. And both need to be cultivated in order to have a balanced uh, life. You know? And to be really free. Uh, actually, actually, I think I heard Gil talk about it once as that the body of the bird of freedom is actually the ten perfections. I, I always liked that visual of the kind of wisdom and compassion together giving flight to the perfections, the potomies. So these um, sublime states have been taught by the Buddha as a way to kind of counterattack greed, hatred, and delusion as a uh, counter-offensive to the uh, unskillful and unwholesome states of mind that are naturally present. It's not our faults that they're there. Right? We're born in some ways with the, the, uh, into a world of the kilesas, right? the torments of mind, greed, hatred, and delusion. Really, we're born into delusion, and then greed and hatred follow. Right? Really, there's only one, uh, in my opinion, there's really only one root that needs to be uprooted, and that's the root of delusion. Right? I think someone just talked, I looked at your website, because I was going to talk about not-self, and I was like, oh, someone just did that. <laughs> I'll, I'll bring something else to the, to the table. The delusion of self. The ultimate of separation, you know. And this heart practice is really about like, can we re-engage and see that my emotion, your emotion, my thoughts, your thoughts, no different. Love and joy and sadness and fear, they happen to each of us just at different times. But it's not your fear. Your happiness. It's Happiness, fear. This is some of the ways I'm starting to think about it. So the Buddha talked about these sublime states as being sublime because they're the best uh, perspective of a right and ideal way of of conduct. Uh, towards ourselves and others. So living in the Brahma Viharas, in these sublime states, right? Metta, loving kindness, which just the the word loving kindness. When I first heard that, I was like, oh, <laughs> I cringed. I did, and it took several years of practicing it before I started to actually see it for what it really is which is not foo-foo, loving-kindness, but actually friendliness. Just a general friendliness. Uh, And uh, what I often, from my kind of clinical background, consider, you know, positive regard, right? Just positive regard. That's easier for me. What that kind of means is I don't have to like you. I don't have to love, you know. I don't have to be like in love with you as much as friendly and uh, 
considerate and understanding. So much easier for me. It just became, it like, it, it dropped away the, whatever the thoughts I had about it, you know, being, having to be sissy la la. It can be for you, but, you know, if you're like me, uh, when you started practicing loving kindness, the opposite came up, which is what's beautiful about these uh, sublime abodes. Is that they're actually purification. Just like all of this practice. Purification. Hmm. So this... I have some notes here, but I'm totally not following them. So this metta, the way I've come to understand it is that this metta, this uh, positive regard, this friendliness, is the uh, training ground. It's the earth. It's the foundation for the other Brahma-viharas, being compassion, karuna. Uh, This kind of uh, leaning towards suffering which I don't know about you, but I never wanted to do and never thought it was going to be at all helpful to lean towards suffering. Uh, counterintuitive, counterinstinctual for me uh, in my conditioning. You know, I was conditioned to avoid uh, suffering at all costs, not realizing that the avoidance was actually the cause. So this karuna, this not only uh, uh, leaning into or towards the suffering of others, right? Suffering in the world, but also, and more importantly, I actually think, our own suffering. You know? I, I think it's actually, I think it's, it's maybe taught in, uh, I don't know, you'd have to ask yourself whether you've been taught to be compassionate towards others. But to be compassionate towards ourselves I don't know that I was ever taught that. And my conditioning may be very different than yours. You know? Let's see. What else was that? Oh, I was thinking on my drive up here. Um, as I, was, I was kind of mulling over compassion. What can I talk about? Compassion, compassion. Hmm. All right, and then this moment of uh, hearing the Dalai Lama speak of compassion. The Dalai Lama, right? the uh, reincarnation of the Buddha of compassion, saying compassion is not uh, innate. It's a skill. It's developed. The seed for compassion is within each of us, just like the seed for awakening is within each of us. Right? The seed for uh, uh, connection is within each of us. But uh, I remember really clearly hearing His Holiness say, uh, compassion must be developed. And that's hence the practice. That's what I love about the Buddha's teaching. So practical. Not very magical and uh, uh, mystical as some people translate it. Very practical. 
and hands-on. Right? This is a doing and a being, not a thinking. Right? I think that actually, uh, us teachers, we tend to maybe complicate it. Or Westerners, anyway. Started with the British, you know. <laughs> they like to complicate things. Sorry if you're British. I was just playing. <laughs> so compassion. So then, uh, mudita. Right? Mudita is sometimes talked about as mm, appreciative or sympathetic joy, but I really like the term unselfish joy. Unselfish joy. The joy in the good deeds of others, the joy in the success of others. Oh, so helpful. I often talk about, um, I'm talking about that uh, unselfish joy. I talk about my, you know, my friend Noah Levine, who is uh, a you know, best-selling author and teaches all over the world and stuff. And I, I've known him since we were kids. And, uh, he, um, when his book came out, his first book, I read it, you know, cried, and then got mad. Got really angry. I was like, I could write that book. <laughs> it wasn't a, you know, it was just our life. And then uh, his book started, and then it started to be successful. And I was like, envious. You know, oh. He cornered the market. <laughs> and then very quickly, um, well, not very quickly, it probably took a few months. <laughs> but in the long, in the scheme of things, you know, pretty quickly, I started to recognize the, the tension, the constriction, the contraction in my heart and turns towards unselfish joy, appreciative joy. And every time that I would hear a news article, because was, he was blowing up, right? News, newspapers, and so it was lots of opportunities for practice. <laughs> right? People would say, oh, did you hear about that Dharma punks? And I would just, instead of contracting and contracting, I would, I would soften into it. And really just turn to appreciative joy and be so happy for him and his success. And the, actually, will your success increase? May you do better. May your message reach the world. And then every time uh, I would get one of those things that would happen, I'd call him. And I would say, I'm really happy to see that your book is doing so well. And it just helped to transform that kind of constrictedness. You know. And now we teach together. He's really kind of helped me uh, along this way. Uh, unselfish joy. So the last of the uh, Brahma Viharas or the sublime states uh, is considered equanimity or balance. And you know, I just actually... Noah and I were just talking about this over the weekend. I just kind of started to see the difference between, so there's really the wisdom equanimity and the heart practice equanimity. 
And for a long time, because I'm, I'm kind of inclined towards, you know, wisdom, wisdom. Oh, that's good. Let's be, you know, understand, see clearly, which is beautiful and totally necessary for this path of awakening to come to fruition. So this uh, uh, equanimity from the wisdom standpoint is, to me, um, the balance right, of uh, uh, all of it. Pride, you know, joy, discernment, seeing clearly, but in a balanced way. And then the, the heart uh, practice of equanimity is, I think, much more about, it's balance, but it's much more about like seeing the reality of karma. You know, that no matter uh, uh, what my intentions are for you, that I can't actually remove your suffering. And I think this is where Compassion and equanimity are really helpful, so we can not stay, sh- not shut down to it, to the suffering of others, but also not have to be overwhelmed by it. And I think this is where sometimes compassion uh, in in the states gets uh, misunderstood. Yeah. So I like that aspect of of uh, you know we are all heirs to our our own karma. And that uh, even though I wish you well, and even though I wish Noah success and you know, appreciative joy and unselfish uh, uh, appreciation for his you know, success and want his success to, to increase, I actually can't really do that. I can't really help him do that. Well, I can't actually. Now I do. Like I'm talking about his book right now. <laughs> I should get royalties. <laughs> But, you know, on the deeper level, that we are all heirs to our own karma. And that we can hold a compassionate heart for the suffering uh, in the world, in our own lives, you know, in others. And we also need to uh, hold the balance of karma has to play itself out. And what we do when confronted with the most difficult times of our lives, you know. Even the, even the little difficulties, right? There's the big pains, the losses, but then there's just the little difficulties, you know. The traffic, or the work situation, or the, you know. You know, so the Buddha was asked at one point, what do you teach? And he said very simply, uh, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. That is all. So, so to teach suffering, I think, I think Buddhism gets a bit of a bad rap there. Oh, it's all about suffering. 
melancholia, dwelling. But if you can't see suffering in all of its forms, right? Impatience, anguish, clinging. If you can't see it there, you can't do anything about it. And so that's what I love about uh, the First Noble Truth and the Buddhist teaching is that it's so pointed to see clearly that there is suffering and that you're the cause of your own suffering. And no one else is actually causing suffering for you in your life. But it's so much about the clinging. But when we can see it clearly and we can turn toward our suffering, and our cause of suffering with a knowing and clear mind and awareness, then we can actually do something about it. And for me, um, you know, raised in an alcoholic and drug-addicted home, abuse and, you know, all that stuff, there was no suffering I wanted to look at. I wanted to avoid at all costs. So I did for you know, a good number of years. Because we all, there's so many ways we can do that, right? We all have these strategies, these skillful strategies that we develop, maybe as children or young adults. So many ways. Right? And this kind of uh, heart of compassion, to me, is so much about Okay, I see that that's happening, but I don't want to look at it. I don't want to look at it. And then it just follows you and grows. I remember when I was a kid, I had, uh, I think maybe started about eight years old, I had this dream, reoccurring dream for many years, where I was like, okay, remember Tron? This, this group remembers the first Tron, not the second, not the remake. <laughs> the remake was okay, actually, but the first Tron. So it was Tron, Grid. And I'm running and running and running and it's dark and there's gl- it's like glowing the lines. And then there's this wave of darkness growing, chasing me, getting bigger, right? And uh, for years, I would just keep running and be, you know, be terrified, you know, uh, these night terrors. Right? And it was just, it would just get bigger and just as long, just right before it was going to uh, envelop me, right before it was going to just collapse on me, I would wake up. For probably maybe six, seven, eight years, I would have this reoccurring dream. I think I started out eight or nine and lasted maybe to my mid-teens. In my mid-teens, I started getting involved with psychotherapy and I started uh, having, getting a little bit of kind of help in my direction. I can't remember when exactly, but maybe around 17 or 18, um, I was having this dream and this is what I remember about it. Uh, having this dream, and this, it was, you know, huge, it was like cars being, being picked up in this big dark wave that was just gonna, it was gonna crash on me, you know, and uh, something inside of me said, turn toward it, and I just stopped in my dream and turned toward the wave, right as it was about to crash, and it disappeared, and I never had that dream again. And to me, that is compassion. It's, that's the, the courage that it takes to look at our own suffering, to see it clearly, to see its cause, 
and with a loving and kind heart, kind of hold it, you know. And not really have to do anything else besides just hold it. We don't have to make it go away. That's the thing. See, that's, I was always trying to make it go away. My, my own pain, my own suffering. And then also in my own life, uh, trying to make other people's, like my mother's pain go away. You know, or my sister's pain go away. Then I started working as a counselor later on in life, right, as a therapist. And I didn't get that plugged in, but a little bit with kids. When I first started working, I would just take on all of their suffering, and they had lots of suffering. You know, all of the horrible stories. And so, what's, what's shifted for me is to see that this compassionate heart from the Buddha's, this karuna from the Buddha's teaching is not being overwhelmed and um, kind of frozen by the suffering of the world or by the suffering of others or by our own suffering, but instead uh, a courageous heart of holding without taking care of or making it better or Because actually, I actually can't do the work for you, right? Even though I want to. Even though I want to, when I was working with kids, you know, I would, um, God, I would want to take away their suffering so much. And I couldn't. I couldn't. But helping them to see and turn toward with love and compassion is the only thing I could do. Now I work with inmates doing the same thing. Adults. It's hard. The other thing uh, about compassion, uh, karuna, that um, I love is that it's a continual practice, right? We can open up to the Suffering and shut down in the next moment and then open up again. Right? And that we're not trying to break the wall down, but actually just brick by brick. You know, that sometimes it's unskillful, I think, to you know, go, I'm gonna just crash all of my all of my defense mechanisms down because I'm Buddhist. <laughs> right. I don't even think the Buddha did that. I think he had a gradual awakening as he calls this path, you know, a gradual awakening. Like the depths of the ocean, from the shore to the deepest part of the ocean, there's a gradual deepening. It's not a hundred yard dash. And I actually think of it a little bit more like you know, two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward. Stop, sit down for a little while. Ah, this feels good. A little release. Oh, it's painful again. All of a sudden the seat gets hot. Oh, maybe I should keep moving. What did I write in my notes? totally abandoned my notes. 
which is great, because that's actually kind of what I wanted to do anyway. True compassion is our ability to hold our suffering and the suffering of others in a knowing and balanced way, right? Seeing the difference between pain and suffering is crucial. Sure, that guilt talks about this a lot. Pain being the reality of life, the reality of sickness, old age, and death, the reality of loss, the reality of being earthbound. Pain is unavoidable. Suffering, seeing the difference between suffering, anguish, dissatisfaction, is helpful. Because that's where the compassion can really be helpful for me, is around the not, is around the uh, acknowledging the pain but then not creating the le- extra layer of suffering, right? You heard the story of the two darts, right? The first dart being the pain of life. You know? Having addiction or abuse, you know, whatever. Kicked out of school. Scolded. Beaten. Poor. All that stuff. The suffering is the holding on and the making it me. Oh, this is the way I am. When I started to do that is when I really feel like the suffering, that wall, that wave started to grow and build. And so over the years of this practice, I'm starting again, remember I was saying, you know, loving, all this foo-foo stuff was not in my, I didn't want that. But, you know, as you probably know, if you've been sitting for any amount of time, what's the first insight of meditation? Who knows? For me, it was how insane my mind is, yeah. (laughs) How crazy, uncouth, out of control. My uh, grandfather would say, duze bats, right, which is... uh, Italian for crazy in the head, yeah. That my, um, it was the first major insight. And that is the, the more that we uh, practice, right, the more that we can see the conditioning of our minds. And then uh, we can't avoid the development of loving kind of friendliness and compassion. We just, it just has to happen at some point. Otherwise, we're lopsided, right? out of balance. I realize it. You guys will get up and walk out on me if I don't stop on time. (laughs) Joy. From the Dhammapada. Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within. 
Be still, free from fear and attachment, and know the sweet joy of the way. What I love about the Dhammapada is that it's eloquent and instructional. Every teaching that I've ever read from the Dhammapada is short, it's concise, it's beautiful, and there's a real clear instruction. Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still. Free from fear and attachment, know the sweet joy of the way. I think I'm done for today. I'm not as constricted as I was when I first walked in the door. (laughs) Thank you for your time and your attention. I don't know, do they do questions? Do you do questions now? Is there any, like, uh, we got like a minute or two, anything, uh, anything I didn't really explain? I'm sure there's lots I actually didn't explain. <laughs> yeah, we'll go, we'll start here with you. Sure, with you. Oh, yeah, microphone. Right. You guys are big time. It's like a talk show around here. <laughs> I was noticing that during the, during the announcements. I was like, this is like Ricky Lake or something. <laughs> Better, I'll try to match you. Um, I hear, th- I'm, for 15 years now, I've heard the word heart thrown a lot, around a lot. And um, I'd like to know what you're, when you say heart, what mm. are you speaking about? Mm. Bodhicitta. Heart, mind, yeah. In, um, I can't remember if it was Richard Davidson. It was one of those early neuroscientists that uh, went to Tibet to uh, study the monks, you know, uh, and they were going to say, they said something about like, uh, oh, he had a big electrode thing and he was going to put it on a monk's head and all, the, all of the monks started laughing, right? <laughs> and they were laughing, and he was like, why are they laughing? And, and they're like, because you think that mind is here, but we call mind here. And so mind, uh, heart, mind, is uh, in Thailand, like they say, sabai, sabai. Same, same, but different. So that's what I mean when I say heart practices. I'm actually saying uh, it's the two wings coming together, yeah? Heart, mind. Uh, I don't know where it is. I don't know where it resides. You have to find out for yourself. Thank you for asking that question, though. There was another, yeah, here. And then we'll end. Wow, you guys aren't getting up and leaving. This is great. <laughs> Just for another moment. I know you, it's been a long day. I um, appreciate your uh, youthfulness um, coming in here. I mean, there are some days when our sangha looks a bit like the annual conference of the AARP. <laughs> um, and I um, resonate with the edginess. Uh, I get very uncomfortable around too much niceness. Yeah. I don't trust it. Yeah. Um, so I, I much more uh, trust that kind of edge. 
So I'm, I'm curious about what it is that you do um, in your practice with inmates. I wonder mm. if you could speak about that. Please. I do the same thing that we do. Yeah. I teach them, uh, first of all, to breathe and to not believe everything they think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, that's mainly, mainly what I'm doing is uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction. You know, I was trained as an MBSR facilitator. So usually I, do, I use mindfulness-based stress reduction and uh, body scan, you know, body awareness, first foundation of mindfulness stuff. Um, and then, you know, I do, I do a lot of other things. I actually have, it's a 30-week program. Yeah, this is an alternative to prison population that I'm working with. But... Uh, I worked in the juvenile halls for a long time, too. But that's basically it. You know, I was locked up when I was like 15, 16, and um, I was taught this uh, practice there. And uh, it's a good place to learn. You, you know, we all like pay thousands of dollars to go on retreat. You know? <laughs> you could just commit a crime. <laughs> Not a very big one, though. No, anyway, so I, I do. I mean, that's primarily what I do. First foundation of mindfulness. Some heart practice, you know, loving kindness, compassion, actually, also. Later on in the, in the it depends. Not everyone is uh, open. Thank you. Thank you. So it's like, uh, what, 11, 10, 50. So we should end, yeah? Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we also, just one last thing, uh, you know, Santa, Inside Santa Cruz, where I teach, we're very excited about IRC and the, the, you know, I'll be doing some teaching there, I'm sure, and we'll be doing some teaching, and there's this, this cross-pollination, and we've always felt very, uh, we're like cousins, your sangha and our sangha, so thank you for having me.